please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like you to take a piece of paper. It can be your bulletin. It can be anything that you happen to have that is scrap paper. And hopefully you can grab a pen or a pencil somewhere from somebody beside you. Um, But it would be good if most everybody had a pen or pencil. Because we're going to start off this morning with a little bit of a quiz. Now this quiz is divided up for those who are over the age of 30 and those who are under the age of 30. I'm not asking you to raise your hands. You know who you are. Just answer accordingly. For those of you who are over the age of 30, I would like you to list on your piece of paper all the family members of the TV series from the Brady Bunch. And for those of you who are under the age of 30, I would like you to list all the ingredients of a Big Mac. Okay? Now you over 30 folks, now that you've got all the Brady Bunch listed, please list the Ten Commandments. Don't look in your Bibles. For those of you under the age of 30, as you're working on your Big Mac, I also want you to list the Ten Commandments without looking in your Bible. And it would be very uncommandment like to look at your neighbor's work. <laughs> so don't. That's a hint in case you need one. All right, well, time is of the essence here, so tick tock, tick tock. We're going to see. Actually, I'm not going to see how well you did. I'm going to let you go home. Now, don't do this during the sermon. Go home, find the Ten Commandments. That's going to be one of your challenges. Actually, they're in two spots, so maybe you can find them in two spots. Another hint was that Al read them already this morning. So you should have had them fairly fresh in your mind. I'm not sure how well you had Jan, Marcia, Cindy, Peter, Bobby, and Greg, thank you, in your mind. Or how much you had two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun in your mind. But the fact of the matter is there was a survey done in 2007 about by the Ten Commandments Commission that wanted to see how well the United States folks, Christian, Jewish, or whatever religion they may or may not practice, could accurately name the Ten Commandments. And they also asked people to name the ingredients of a Big Mac, and also the members of the Brady Bunch. Well, let's see how you did across, compared to the general population. Seven of the Ten Commandments are familiar to less than half of the population. So less than half of the people surveyed were able to even list seven of the ten. I'm not sure how many you were able to recite, but interestingly... The more commonly recited ones are honor thy mother and thy father. Who got that one? Honor thy mother and the father. All right. Well, we're about half. And remember the Sabbath. 
Who got Sabbath? All right. Good one. 79% of respondents who actually do attend a place of worship at least once a week, which actually is a pretty high um, attendance rate, could name two all-beef patties, but only 70 of them, 70% of them could name thou shalt not kill. Bobby and Peter are the least recalled names from the Brady Bunch. Poor Bobby and Peter. But they were more familiar to respondents than the least recalled commandments, which are remember the Sabbath and do not make any false idols. So that was for those being compared to with the Brady Bunch. Obviously, the Ten Commandments are not well memorized by a vast majority of the population. And I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time to literally memorize the Ten Commandments. I'm not asking you to do it, but it's an idea. Because the Ten Commandments, after all, were handed down from God. They were a direct word from God through Moses to us. They are the crux of Jewish life and the foundation of Christian life. They are, in fact, a divine gift of salvation. And I think that sometimes they're ignored by Christians who claim that these laws are rather burdensome and that ah, Jesus came to discard the law. So do we really have to pay attention to the Ten Commandments? But the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to provide us with a list of laws or a code of ethics to live. There is no way, after all, that just ten rules or commandments could be a comprehensive listing for everything that we need to have for successful living. But these commandments instead give us guidelines to live by so that we fully understand the very character of God. Who is God? When we understand the divine power of God by following the first three commandments, think about it, those first three commandments help us understand the the divine power of God, we then begin to behave differently. And it affects our social living, our interactions with others, our behavior. And that, in turn, affects our new way of worshiping. Isn't that an interesting connection? How when, when we understand the divinity of God through these commandments, then we begin to behave differently as the next set of commandments tell us. Socially, we may interact differently. And then it is hopeful that this will lead us to a new sense of worship, which will then kind of take us round to the top again, creating a new way to understand God and live according to God's salvation in us. And yet sometimes people get so caught up in these ten rules and regulations, they argue about them. They argue whether they should be in front of a building or not. And, and they can't see the purpose of them or the reasons that they actually even exist. They're not there to constrict us. The Ten Commandments are here to transform us. And yet they are rules. Rules are everywhere, and they are a reality of life, sometimes to our dismay. We have parking rules, driving rules, unspoken rules of etiquette, explicit rules of the tax guidelines, household rules, classroom rules. Whether we like it or not, rules are everywhere. And while sometimes the rules, in fact, drive us crazy, most people admit that without rules, our lives would be pretty, 
Well, they'd be pretty chaotic and, in fact, uncontrollable. Rules are there for a purpose. A number of years ago, when I was a graduate student at Penn State, I was teaching a public speaking class. Now, even though the class met at 4.40 p.m., I still had a few students who had a tendency to arrive late. Now, this bothered me because I thought it was disrespectful to me and to the classroom. But what bothered me even more was when the students would come late when their peers were giving speeches. And they would walk in, and they would have to walk in at the front of the classroom where the speech giver was standing and presenting, and it would just be very disruptive. And so I finally decided that I needed to make a rule, because even with my encouragement, a couple of these students still kept coming late. And so I said that when class began, and especially on days that we would be having student presentations, I would shut the door. So if you came to class and the door was shut, you knew that class had already begun. And so when students are are speaking, you need to wait outside of the door until you hear the thunderous applause that would be bound to happen um, from the presentations. And then you can come in after the students' speeches. And that would be a signal. They could hear the, the clapping. I thought it was a pretty easy solution that people could follow. Well, I had two students who still continued to be tardy. And when they would come to class, the door would be shut, and a student would be up giving a presentation. Now, I will admit that these students were from other cultures, and so there might have been a cult- an appropriate cultural um, misunderstanding there. But what happened, instead of them waiting outside of the door until the applause came, they would knock. And so the student giving the speech would stop and the whole class would stop and they wouldn't come in until somebody answered the door and so it caused more disruption. And so finally after that class period I said, look, I really, really want you all to come to class one time. But if you're not able to come on class, we're going to still shut the door, but don't knock, don't do anything until you hear the applause and then slip in the door. Do we all understand? Yes. Good. Next class period. Students were up there presenting, giving their speeches. The door was shut, and I looked around, and who wasn't there? But I thought, surely they know what to do. I got so wrapped up in the first speech, I didn't even think about it. And then the second speech came. And as the teacher during speeches, I would always sit in the back far corner of the classroom, just being another member of the audience. But I would be writing notes, grading their speech while they were speaking. Now, at this time, I was 26 years old, so I blended in pretty well with the other mass of students among me. And um, there was a knock at the door, middle of the middle of Mike's speech. And what happened immediately, Mike stopped speaking, and the entire class whipped their head around to look at my reaction. And I just looked up and I go, keep going, Mike. Nobody answered the door. And so Mike, even though it was disrupted, kept going on with his speech. A little bit later into Mike's speech, 
And I just shook my head. I said, no, we're going to keep going. We're going to teach them how to do this. And so the students were kind of, this whole speech was just a disaster. Poor Mike. But we had to get through this one time. So Mike kept talking and the speech was going on. And I was grading and writing notes to Mike and to myself. And then the speech was over and I didn't even think about it. The applause happened and I was writing. There were always a few minutes of transition between students' speeches. And before I knew it, there was a loud voice at the door who said, who's in charge here? And I looked up at the doorway and there were two police officers who had been standing at the door knocking, trying to come in, and nobody had answered the door. And of course, they looked out and couldn't see a teacher up front and couldn't see any teacher among the students, and so they had no idea what was going on in this anarchy. And so finally, I sheepishly said, oh, that would be me, and they said, we need to talk to you. So I walked outside of the classroom and met with the two police officers, who I had no idea, I had never, ever heard and never have since heard of two police officers coming to a college classroom. And I said, I'm really sorry that we didn't let you in when you first knocked. And they said, oh, well, don't worry about that. We just are looking for two of your students. Interestingly enough, they were looking for the two students who were always tardy. And they were not there that day. But nonetheless... I was embarrassed that I had left the police officers standing at the door when they knocked and tried to come in. Rules are important. And rules in the classroom and rules in the rest of life are important because they help us maintain order and semblance. But sometimes, as happens, they bring about the unexpected. During Jesus' time we read about Jesus coming to the temple. And the temple courtyard was full of money changers and people selling animals and all sorts of things going on. There was a lot of activity going on in the courtyard. It was full of vendors and also money changers. You see, people came from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to attend that temple. There was a sense of pilgrimage that was often involved. And this story, which occurs, one of the few stories that occurs in all four Gospels, comes, unlike the other three synoptic Gospels, comes very early on in John, during the Passover. And so there were a lot of people coming. And they would have to, according to Old Testament laws, bring animal sacrifices to the temple. Now, because these people were often traveling from quite a distance, it was pretty impossible for them to think about bringing doves or sheep or cattle along for these sacrifices. It was a convenience thing that they would know that they were able to just purchase them there at the temple. Well, not only did they have to purchase them, but because they were coming from such a distance, they often had different types of currency, different types of money. And so they had to exchange them with the shekels that was the money that was used among the the courtyard vendors. And so all of this, in many ways, was very legitimate. The expectation of the reasons that this this courtyard was abounding, a bountiful exchange of commerce was actually because of Old Testament law. There were rules that governed how people worshipped, the sacrifices they brought, and then they were mixed with the laws of the governmental body as far as using shekels for all sorts of commerce exchanges. 
Now, I expect, as with most businesses, there are people who are very legitimate and who followed all the guidelines. And then there are other people, sometimes in business, who try to take advantage of the situation. They might say it's just a mere matter of law of supply and demand, but they might work it a little bit harder, and so they might charge much more than the going value of the sheep or the cattle. But yet, they're still providing a service to follow Old Testament law. And here we find Jesus walking in and throwing the rules, throwing the mechanics of temple worship into chaos so that neither the tithes nor the sacrifices could even be offered that day. Jesus wasn't allowing worship to happen in the way that the Old Testament had wanted it to be. Now this story, a popular story, is a story that often Mennonites, because of our pacifist belief and teachings, like to overlook. Or at least we Mennonites are very uncomfortable with this story. Our discomfort with the story is because it shows Jesus' angry side. And some would even say Jesus' violent and unpredictable side. How do we explain this type of behavior from the man called the Prince of Peace? It is an uncomfortable story. It is disconcerting and it is incredibly awkward for those of us who call ourselves pacifists. And maybe that's okay. Maybe we should be uncomfortable with this story, not because of Jesus' actions, but because we can easily realize that we could be the source of Jesus' anger. William Willimon says, Today we gather as the church and we listen to scripture that stands over us, that calls us to account and prompts us to self-examination. This is the practice of the Christian faith at our best and our most honest. And once, in one of the few occasions that Jesus got really mad, we're talking white-hot, angry, red-faced with rage, mad, it was at the temple, the house of God. And John, the gospel writer, Willimon says, wants us to know up front that Jesus is coming to clean house with whip in hand to drive out our false gods and to cure us of our foolish idolatries. Notice the Ten Commandments coming in. Jesus was the most incensed, the most angry in the temple, the place of worship, and his anger was most fierce against the holy people. He was, Willimon says, angry with us. End of quote. And what adds to our discomfort is the lack of explanation that Jesus gives as to the reason for this behavior in the temple. When asked, Jesus doesn't really answer the question, something he often does, but still, we'd like to have some understanding of why the chaos, why the explosion. And of course, biblical scholars have their ideas as to why Jesus would do this cleansing of the temple bringing chaos to this, to this situation. 
They thought that Jesus was bothered by the legality or the logistics of the vendors and the money changers that were more prominent in worship and took pl- that was t- than, the, than, the, than the worship that was taking place inside the temple walls. It was distracting the people from the real nature of what they had come to do and what they were there for. And Jesus was bothered as a result that the Ten Commandments were being broken. They were focusing more on other issues of idolatry or worship, false gods, than they were worshiping God the Almighty. Other scholars think that Jesus obviously knew the Old Testament law So his attack wasn't so much on the laws, but on the complacency that he saw creeping in by the people who were coming to worship. They were more focused on getting the right price for the bird or getting the the easiest exchange rate for their coins than they were about the actual sacrifice. He was also very much bothered, this Jesus, the one who often focused on the poor, that this type of worship did not make it accessible for everybody. There would definitely be some people who financially could not come, who could not have the money to purchase the animals necessary and, to, and therefore not be welcomed into the temple. Jesus wanted all people to have access to God, whether they could pay for it or not. And that wasn't what the Old Testament laws had offered But Jesus wanted to show that the tables have been turned and that worship should be and can be for all people. A third possibility that scholars propose is that Jesus overturned the tables because he was upset at the status quo of the religious process. Was this idea of coming and buying the animals for sacrifices, exchanging your money, becoming just so mundane, so everyday, so status quo, that the religious process was being diluted through it all? Was it too ordinary, too standard, too methodical, without any real meaning to it? And so Jesus decided it was time to clean things out, shake things up a bit. Like Jesus, we also have to stop and ask ourselves at times, are we practicing things that feel like they are status quo in our spiritual lives? Are our worship practices becoming so regular and so institutionalized that we're close to the possibility of reformation or change or renewal, whether in our personal worship or whether in our corporate worship? There is a story of a man who feared that his wife was going deaf. And so he decided to try an experiment with her. And he placed himself at one end of the room, a large room, and he asked his wife to sit with her back to her, with his back, with her back to him on the other end of the room. And so he started over on this end of the room, and he said in a very low, almost a whisper of a voice, "Can you hear me?" No response. So he walked to the middle of the room, and again he repeated in a whisper, low voice, "Can you hear me?" No response. So he walked over and stood right beside, right behind his wife. And he said, can you hear me? And the wife turned and she goes, yes, for the third time, I can hear you. 
Like this story, sometimes things get overturned in the tables of our lives. Our experiments, our lives sometimes don't turn out initially how we expect. The results are different. Sometimes the tables are turned. When Jesus invades our lives, it's never business as usual. Jesus overturned the tables on conventional religion, and he still does today. He becomes angry when he observes how some humans corrupt the faith, using God for material gain rather than being used by God for their spiritual gain. When Jesus, in fact, overturned the tables, he was trying to show that life is not about making money and not that business is bad, but that the temple was to be set aside for godly purposes, not earthly endeavors. It was a place for worship, not entrepreneurship. It was a place for communion, not commerce. It was a place for reverence, not retail. It was a place to seek forgiveness, not fortune, peace, not profit. But Jesus turns over the tables to make room for change and reformation to the status quo. Jesus caused people to ask questions about the practices at hand and to ask the questions of why he did what he did. And maybe the whole purpose was for people to ask that question. Why would Jesus come and do this? Why would Jesus overturn something that seemed so lawful, so God-ordained, so in line with the rules of the Old Testament? Why would Jesus cause a disruption just to make people think about it? Why would Jesus ask us to take a new look at our lives and overturn the tables that have been right or rightly assumed to be correct all of our lives? Maybe Jesus wants us. Yes, us, to live with the discomfort of the actions in the story. Perhaps we have to live with the ambiguity of a Messiah who shows anger at times when people are getting so caught up in things that they don't point the way to God anymore. Maybe Jesus wants us to trust that he knew what he was doing when he overturned the tables and he threw out the money changers even if we don't fully understand what he was doing. Maybe as pacifists, we don't have to defend or explain Jesus' actions. Rather, maybe we are to let Jesus be Jesus and instead look at ourselves and determine what needs to be overturned and cleaned out in our lives. And maybe that's the rule that all of us should follow this Lenten season. Amen.